Well, good morning. I guess it's still kind of morning, isn't it? My uh, parents were born in Baghdad, Iraq, which, as you probably know, isn't a great vacation destination these days. But um, my parents, even though they were raised in, of course, a very Islamic country, did not raise my brother and I as Muslims. They actually raised us as Christians. And the reason is because my people, my ethnic background is Assyrian. Now, this is not to be confused with Syrians who are from the country Syria, which of course is a country that exists today. Uh, we are Assyrians. So just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Assyrian people. At some point, it looks like, yeah, most of you have. Chances are, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you'll recall the Assyrians are actually talked a lot about in the Old Testament. Unfortunately for me, we were the sworn enemies of Israel, so consequently that made us the sworn enemies of God. So. I was kind of a bummer growing up and finding that out. But um, my, my parents, God bless them, my parents, they would always want me to be proud of my Assyrian heritage. In fact, I remember they would always try to take this sort of negative fact and, and spin it in a positive way. So for example, when I was like maybe seven or eight years old, they would come up to me and they'd be saying, hey, you know what, Alan? Guess what? Guess what, little Alan? Our people are talked about in the Bible. But you know what? We're the bad guys, you know? So with a lot of therapy and counseling, I got over the emotional turmoil of knowing God doesn't love me and have a wonderful plan for my life. No, I'm kidding. He, he does. But anyways, I should probably stop talking about my problems. Let's talk about the question of homosexuality that we're here to discuss. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know from you, with a show of hands, raise your hand if you know someone, a friend, a family member, a coworker, who identifies themselves as either gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Raise your hand if you know Looks like just about everyone's raising their hand. And I too am raising my hand. I too have friends and family who identify in that way. And what this does is it raises the question, how are we as Christians supposed to continue in our relationships with these friends, family who identify as gay and lesbian without compromising our biblical convictions? And if it isn't already obvious, it is going to be an uphill battle for us in order to be able to do that successfully in light of the culture that we live in today. Now, when I say the word battle, I do not mean to suggest that this is a battle against people who identify as gay or lesbian. It is not. They are not the enemy. The real enemy is the false ideas that the culture has bought into about the nature of homosexuality and about the nature of what they think the Bible says about homosexuality. And of course, you probably know a lot of these trends in culture, so I'm not going to rehash them right now. But I do want to offer a principle that can help us to move forward in light of the culture that we live in today. And the principle is simply based on the title of this talk. And the principle is this. We need to know the truth, but speak it with compassion. Know the truth, but speak it with compassion. And what does knowing the truth mean? It simply means knowing the truth about what Scripture says about this subject and not compromising what it says. But of course, we can't just simply know the truth about Scripture because if we want to be savvy ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we have to know also what secular research says about that. And I'll talk about one of the reasons why that's important. So knowing the truth entails knowing the truth about Scripture and science, what it says about this topic. But oftentimes, Christians use the truth like a club to beat people over the head with it. And so we need to learn how to use the truth and communicate it in a persuasive but winsome, gracious, and compassionate manner. And indeed, I believe that as we learn the truth about this subject, it should drive us to have compassion for men and women who identify as gay or lesbian. 
So let's begin by looking at the truth. And again, at the beginning here, I just want to talk about some general things. What is the truth about what Scripture says broadly about sex before we address specifically what it says about homosexuality? And chances are a lot of this beginning part will be reviewed, so I won't spend too much time on it. But let me just point out some things that I think are important for us to sort of lay a foundation. And that is, Scripture teaches that God is the one who made sex. Right? Secular culture didn't give us sex. God gave us sex. In fact, it was his idea to make it procreative, and it was his idea to make it pleasurable. Scripture also teaches that God made sex to occur between a man and a woman. Again, this is the, you know, the Genesis account, which you know, we've already been talking about here. Scripture also makes it clear that God made sex to occur between a man and a woman and only in a marriage relationship. And a marriage, of course, only entails a married man and a woman. Now, of course, this is the Genesis biblical account of creation and the way God made humanity. But notice, it is not just an Old Testament kind of old thing that's out there. Jesus himself, in fact, summarizes this biblical model. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about the nature of marriage and divorce. And listen to what he does. He cites this Genesis creation account as authoritative. He says in Matthew 19, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? So you see the all caps there. It's uh, where Jesus is quoting the Old Testament Genesis account. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus cites the biblical Genesis account, and then notice what he does. He adds his own commentary. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, Jesus believes that is a God-ordained institution. In fact, the male-female coming together to create a one-flesh union is the only pair, it's the only couple that's ever described in all of Scripture as being capable of creating a one-flesh union. No other couple, no other group, no other pairing of people is ever described that way. And so when it comes to sex and marriage, according to Jesus, it's about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's Jesus' view. And so let me offer you here a brief tactic that I use when I'm talking to people, especially those people who don't share my convictions as a Christian. Because chances are you have been asked or will be at some point, well, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Christian, what do you think about homosexuality? Now, you know your answer is going to be wildly unpopular to a non-Christian. And so here's the tactic that I use. Whenever someone asks me this question, if they're not a Christian, I let God take the heat. Let God take the heat. And here's what I mean by that. So you see, people typically don't like Christians. They don't like the church. But what they do like is Jesus. They think Jesus is kind of cool. You know, he's that compassionate guy. He's the loving guy. He's the tolerant guy. And so I use that to my advantage. So when someone asks me, Alan, what do you think about homosexuality? I say this. You know, in Matthew 19, Jesus said that when it comes to sex or marriage, it's supposed to be only about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. And since I'm a follower of Jesus, I have to adopt his view. So that's my view as well. So in other words, if you have a problem with what I'm saying, you got to take it up with Christ, not me. 
And so notice, normally your response to the question, what do you think about homosexuality, is going to be met with hostility and anger. And their energy and anger is going to be normally directed at you. But when you say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I have to adopt his view, you kind of pull like a little martial arts move called Aikido, you know? So the energy comes at you, you just step aside and let the energy hit Jesus, okay? <laughs> and that's perfectly fine. He, he can handle that. He can handle that anger, that hostility. Because think about it. We don't hold this view because we invented it. We hold this view because Jesus invented it. And since we're a follower of Jesus, we don't have any options as to what we believe. We have to adopt his view. So again, I'm letting God, or letting, in this case, Jesus, take the heat. Now notice, if sex can only occur between a man and a woman who's married, then all other forms of sexual behavior are prohibited. It doesn't matter what they are, whether you're talking about sex before marriage, fornication, homosexual sex, uh, adultery, incest, rape, bestiality, it doesn't matter. Notice, we are not picking out just homosexuality as the only sexual sin or reserving it for some special condemnation, any other type of sexual activity outside a married man and a woman is sin. And that's why it puzzles me when my friends and family who identify as gay and lesbian say to me, Alan, how come you guys, you Christians, are so hateful towards homosexuals? Like, what do you mean? Well, you guys say it's a sin. Well, first of all, that's Jesus' view. But second of all, the point is, is look, you're not special in any way, Mr. or Mrs. Homosexual. You're just one person of many people engaged in sexual sin, right? In fact, there's probably far, you probably know far more heterosexuals who are engaged in sin number one or three, sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage, than you probably know homosexuals engaged in homosexual sin. And I bet you, you don't hate those people. I bet you, you probably have breakfast with them, go play tennis, maybe you went to see Guardians of the Galaxy with them, whatever. You, whatever you do with those people, you just hang out with them, you're friends with them, you're family with them. You don't hate them, even though they might be engaged in some sin. And of course, the same is true with many of our friends and family who identify as gay and lesbian. We could think that what their behavior is is sinful, according to scripture, but still love them, hang out with them, spend time with them. What's the big deal? And so that's why I always think it's odd about their concern that we are just sort of picking them out. We're not. <laughs> there are actually far fewer homosexuals engaged in homosexual sex than there are people, heterosexuals, engaged in the other kinds of sin. So we don't hate those people. We don't hate our friends and family who identify as gay or lesbian either. Now that's what scripture says about sex broadly, but also let me point out what it says specifically about the topic of homosexuality. And I would argue that Scripture is clear in both Old and New Testaments that homosexual behavior is sin. We have, in fact, three passages in the Old and three passages in the New Testament. And notice what, the, what is pre prohibited in these texts, which we're not going to go into all of them, but what's prohibited in these texts is homosexual sex, regardless of why you might engage in it. In other words, the Bible doesn't care whether you're like, well... I'm interested in experimenting with homosexuality. The Bible says it doesn't matter. If that's what you're interested in doing, you can't have homosexual sex. If you say, well, I was born with a natural desire towards same-sex people, it doesn't matter. You can't have homosexual sex. It doesn't matter if you're a man in a prison population and the only other possible sexual outlets are other men. It doesn't matter. You can't have homosexual sex. And 
the other point I want to make about these six passages is that they all entail, listen very carefully, a wholesale categorical prohibition against all forms of homosexual sex. Now, the reason why I point this out is because there are a growing number of Christians today that are advancing what's called pro-gay theology. This is the attempt by many Christians to try to take what are clear biblical texts about the nature of homosexual sex, and they want to reinterpret them to make them sound gay-affirming. People like Matthew Vines of the Reformation Project, uh, Mel White of Soul Force, or Justin Lee of the Gay Christian Network are people who are all training Christians to do that, to adopt this sort of new interpretive approach to the biblical text on the subject, and then send out these Christians back to their conservative churches and to reform the churches to also become gay-affirming. And here is, in a nutshell, their argument. Here's what they say. They say, you know what? The Bible, yes, it does condemn homosexuality, but only abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms of homosexuality, like gang rape in Sodom and Gomorrah, or like pederasty, men who have sex with boys, or master-slave relationships where the masters use the slaves as, a, as an outlet for sodomy. But since modern-day homosexuals do not engage in those abusive or coercive behaviors, therefore the biblical prohibitions do not apply to them. So notice what they're doing. They're saying the Bible condemns that kind of homosexuality, but modern-day homosexuals are not engaged in exploitive or coercive acts. They're engaged in loving, consensual relationships. And therefore what the Bible says about homosexuality does not apply to them. And so that's their approach. And that's why my point here is actually the biblical texts there are not at all in any way identifying any particular type of homosexual sex. They all entail a wholesale categorical prohibition against all forms of homosexual sex. Let me just give you one quick example. Leviticus 18.22. Notice the bolded text there simply says this. You shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. This is an abomination. Okay? Notice there's no uh, indication that any particular type of homosexual sex is in view. And there's no qualification or exception made for loving consensual relationships. It's just a wholesale prohibition against all forms of homosexual sex. In fact, even in the context does not indicate anything other than that. The verse before is a prohibition against sacrificing your children to Molech. The verse after is a prohibition against bestiality. So nothing even in the context suggests that this is about any kind of homosexual sex. It's just simply, hey, look, if you're a man, you can't have sex with another man. And of course, vice versa would be implied. Wholesale categorical prohibition. So that's why these attempts at pro-gay theology are just wrong-headed from the get-go. Now, if someone were to ask you, well, Alan, um, or not Alan, because I'm the only one who's Alan here, but uh, if someone were to ask you, as they've asked me, uh, well, what do you think the Bible says about homosexuality? Now, even though there are six passages, as I just kind of mentioned there, that you could perhaps choose from, my suggestion is that you turn to the Romans 1 text as your primary text. I think it's the most straightforward and defensible text on the issue. Now, I'm not suggesting that the other texts aren't clear. They are. But as I'll point out in just a moment, I think the Romans 1 text is the most straightforward and defensible text. First, let's look at the passage, and then I'll explain why I think that's the case. 
Now, Romans 1, as you probably are aware, is uh, an epistle written by Paul to the Roman church. Romans 1 is the beginning of the epistle, and it's actually a creation narrative. So Paul's talking about how God has created the world and humanity, and he says that the evidence of God's hand in creation is so obvious that men are without excuse. And Paul says, in fact, some men, though, however, reject the obvious evidence of God's hand in creation. And so instead of worshiping God the creator, they worship the creation. Paul says these people who are rebellious, who are rejecting the obvious truth of God, God lets them kind of continue in their rebellion. And then we get to this particular passage that Paul brings up. He says this, For this reason, God gives these people over to the degrading passions. For their women, exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now the word there, function, where it says, you know, men abandon the natural function of the woman and vice versa. The word function there in the Greek is krisis, which according to the standard Greek lexicon, simply means use, relations, or function, especially of sexual intercourse. So in other words, Paul is making a design argument. He's saying men abandon the natural sexual function of a woman. So men are supposed to use women as the appropriate sexual outlet, and and vice versa, women are supposed to use men as the appropriate sexual outlet. However, Paul says, men and women abandoned the natural function of the way God made them. Because remember, it's a creation narrative, Romans 1. This is the way God made people. He made them to function in a heterosexual way. However, these people, however, abandon the natural function, sexual function of the way God made human beings and instead began having sex with one another. So again, it's a design argument that Paul's making. Now, here's the reason why I suggest that this is, should be your primary text you go to initially. Number one is this. Romans 1 addresses both male and female homosexuality in one passage. Now, I believe the other texts imply that, but they don't say it explicitly. So if you wanted to make the case, you would have to make an additional argument in order to point that out. Romans 1, though, explicitly says it, so I think it's more straightforward in that sense. Number two, Romans 1 is a New Testament text. Now, why would that be relevant? What, can anyone think of any objection that someone might raise if you cited a passage in Leviticus as a reason why you think the Bible is against homosexual sex? What might someone say? Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. They'll say, well, wait a minute. Leviticus is the old law. It's the Mosaic law. It only applies to Israel. And we have, now have the new covenant. So, you know, that, that seems to be a good reason to reject it. You know, Christians in the, in the uh, you guys don't care uh, that in the Old Testament Leviticus, there's a prohibition against wearing clothes made out of two different kinds of linen. Or that Leviticus says you can't plant two different kinds of crop in the same field. Or Leviticus says you can't eat bacon. And we all know we wouldn't follow those prohibitions, right? You know? But, oh, when it comes to homosexuality, oh, you Christians care all about that. Isn't that a little bit inconsistent? And to be honest with you, they, they have a point. 
right? Now, I'm not saying that the Mosaic Law is completely irrelevant and we should never study it or anything like that. There is a way to understand what does the Mosaic Law have to do with the New Testament believer? What's the relationship? But notice, that's an additional theological explanation you would have to make, which indeed many Christians have a hard time understanding what that relationship looks like. And so my suggestion is don't worry about the Leviticus passage. Just go to Romans 1. Because not only is it a New Testament text, it's written during the new covenant of Christ, which is a covenant that governs Christian behavior primarily today. And so for that reason, I think the Romans 1 passage is better in that case as well. So that's the second thing. The third benefit to the Romans 1 text is that it clearly describes the behavior that's in question. So, for example, in Romans, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or 1 Timothy 1, 10, you have what's called Paul's vice lists. Paul is simply listing a whole bunch of people engaged in sin. And he says, you know, liars, adulterers, thieves, homosexuals, you know, so on and so forth. Now, Paul, in those two texts, invents a Greek word. The Greek word is arsenokoitai. And people say, well, wait a minute. Paul invents his Greek word arsenokoitai. It's not used before or elsewhere. So how do we know that when Paul used this word, he meant homosexuals as we understand them today? Now, there's actually a really good answer to that question, but it requires uh, an understanding of what is written in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. And so in order to answer the question, you'd have to make an additional claim or additional argument that appeals to the Septuagint. So again, it's, it's more complicated. Romans 1, however, the word homosexual does not appear anywhere in the text. Yet notice, it's perfectly clear which behavior Paul has in mind. It's the behavior where a man abandons the natural function of a woman and instead has sex with other men and vice versa. So for those three reasons, I think the Romans 1 text should be your primary text. Again, the other texts are clear about this, but I think uh, Romans 1 has less, uh, requires less additional explanation. So that's what scripture says about this topic, but I also want to point out two things that I believe are important for us as believers to know that it doesn't say. And the first thing it doesn't say is that homosexuality is the worst sin, the supreme abomination, the unpardonable crime against God. It doesn't teach that. In fact, every time we see scripture mention homosexual behavior, it's just listed amongst other sins, and there's no indication that it's the greatest of all sins. Now, some people say, but Alan, it, it, isn't it a serious sin? And my answer to you would be, yeah, it's a serious sin. And the reason it's a serious sin is because it's a sexual sin. And in fact, scripture indicates that sexual sins are sins committed against the body. All other sins are committed outside the body. Paul makes this point, I think, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 or so. So, in other words, sexual sins are committed against the body. And I think Paul makes this distinction because when you engage in a sexual act, you're not just bringing two bodies together. It's like you're uniting souls. And so this is why Paul says, look, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How can you unite your body then with a prostitute? What does righteousness and unrighteousness have in common? So Paul does classify homosexuality as a sexual sin, a sin committed against the body. So it is in that unique category. But even then, there's no indication that it's the greatest of all sexual sins. And the other thing scripture does not teach is that uh, we cannot be friends with or in a family relationship with someone who identifies himself as gay or lesbian. In fact, I would argue the opposite is true. But the Bible encourages us to pursue relationships 
with our friends and family who identify as gay or lesbian. After all, it's only through relationships can we have any kind of a influence in our life. Relationships are like a bridge by which we can show love to people, communicate the truth, tell them about the gospel or whatever it is. And I believe Jesus is a great example of a person who models seeing people who are considered outcasts of their society, but still humanizing them in front of a community of people that otherwise would dehumanize them. Now, I'm not saying that people who identify as gay or lesbian are considered outcasts in our culture, but I think amongst a lot of Christian communities, sometimes we tend to have an attitude where they are seen like, oh, it's those people. They're, it's them, you know? And so there's this us-them mentality. But Jesus, I would argue, would, would sort of break through that and just be like, no, I'm going to love these people because after all, they're made in the image of God. They are intrinsically valuable. They are deserving of dignity and respect and love. And so there is no place for degrading behavior or dehumanizing talk. That is just not an option for us as Christians. So that's what scripture says and doesn't say about this subject. But I want to also turn our attention to what science or secular research says. And I'm curious to know from you, why do you think that this would be important? I mean, we're Christians. Shouldn't we just care about what scripture says? What benefit could there be to understanding what secular research says about this topic? Can anyone think of a reason? Yes, sir. Okay, it can be used as separate reasoning, and why would we want perhaps a separate type of reasoning? Okay, yeah, so some people don't want to listen to the Bible. They don't consider the Bible to be an authority. And so for them, it's like, well, that's an authority to you, but not to me. I, I, I believe in science. Science is what tells us truth. Science is king. Science is God. Now, in one sense, there's nothing really problematic about looking to science. In fact, if science discovers something that is true about the nature of reality, then it, we as Christians can accept it, right? Maybe it was a, an atheist scientist that discovered, and I don't know if this is true, but let's just say it was an atheist scientist who used secular scientific principles to discover that water was made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Water's H2O. Would that make the statement, water's H2O, somehow anti-God or anti-Christian? Not at all. All that person has done is discover something that is true about the world that God has created. And so we can wholeheartedly accept that as well. After all, God speaks through scripture, we call that special revelation, and God speaks through creation, we call that general revelation. So as long as science or secular research principles are not hijacked for political purposes, and they discover something that is true about the nature of humanity or the world, we can accept those things as well. What's surprising also is that when you look at secular research, indeed produced by people who are attitudinally pro-gay or lesbian, or who are gay and lesbian themselves, their research debunks a lot of the myths that the culture believes about the topic of homosexuality. Now, uh, um, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of these because we only have a little bit of time, but I do want to mention perhaps the, one of the most common questions or common beliefs that the culture has bought into, and that is the idea that people who are homosexual are somehow born this way. Now, the reason why a lot of people think this is the case is because of the work of two pioneers in sexual orientation research, Simon LeVay and Dean Hamer. Both of these men are Harvard University-trained scientists. These guys are like top of the food chain. And they set out to try to prove that you're born this way. 
Simon LeVay is a brain researcher. He did the work on, on brains in the hypothalamus, which is a section of the brain, and found out that they actually there was differences on the sizes of the hypothalamus amongst homosexuals than there were heterosexuals. Dean Hamer produced a study that uh, showed that there was a genetic component to homosexuality, that it was indeed inherited in genetic. And so because of the pioneering work of these two guys, this got the ball rolling and people were just celebrating like crazy that these two guys, Harvard University people, had finally shown that you're born gay. And of course, a bunch of research was coming in at the same time showing, man, we've now done it, we've proven it. Now, what's interesting with science is that no one or even two studies can prove anything, really. In fact, oftentimes, scientists will come afterwards and try to produce additional studies that either corroborate or contradict these guys' results. And so here's what happened. Study after study after study after study came after these guys, and it found out that a lot of these studies were actually debunking their conclusions. It was showing that actually homosexuals are not born that way. And so people started to wonder, well, wait a minute. I thought these guys had proven you're born gay and now all the research is coming out after them, which are larger, larger uh, sample sizes, more powerful testing, was showing that you're not born that way. And so they were asked, well, what do you think of this, all this research that seems to debunk what your initial conclusions were? And here's what they said. Simon Levy, when asked, well, what do you think about this? He said this, it's important to stress what I didn't find. I didn't prove that homosexuality is genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way, the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work. Nor did I locate a gay center in the brain. So he backtracked from what many people had concluded about his research. When some other tests came up that were genetic in nature, showing that actually there's no genetic uh, linkage to homosexuality, Dean Hamer was asked, well, is it genetic? Because all these tests are showing that actually it's not. What do you think? He said this, absolutely not genetic. He said, from twin studies, we know that half or more of the variability in sexual orientation is not inherited. In fact, he went on to say in, a, in another study, the best recent study suggests that female sexual identification is more a matter of environment than heredity. Now, keep in mind, these guys are both openly gay men who are trying to prove you're born gay. And they're saying it is not the case, you're not born that way, and that's not what the research shows. But wait a minute, everybody in our culture thinks that the science has proven it, and these guys are saying it's the opposite? What, what was the research that disproved this idea? Well, actually, Dean Hamer mentions it. Twin studies. Is anyone here an identical twin? Raise your hand if you're an identical twin. Anyone? Has anyone ever met an identical twin? Oh, yeah, all right, good. All right, so what, what do identical twins share besides looks? I heard it, what, genes? Yeah, genes, DNA, that's right. And so they provide a very interesting test scenario. If you wanna know whether a characteristic is genetic or not, you can look at identical twins. If one identical twin has a particular characteristic, then the co-twin should also have the same characteristic about 100% of the time. That's called a concordance rate. So the concordance rate for a truly genetic characteristic should be about 100% or close to it whenever you have identical twins. So they did this with same-sex attraction. They, took, uh, they went to uh, Australia where they have a registry of 25,000 sets of twins. 
And they asked, well, every time we see one twin brother that has same-sex attraction, we should expect that the concordance rate that the other twin brother has same-sex attraction should be about 100% of the time. Should be about 100%. But here's what they found. The concordance rate for same-sex attraction in identical twin brothers was only 11%. This was the death nail to the idea that homosexuality is genetic. And by the way, it was produced by Bailey, who is actually one of the premier sexual orientation researchers in the world. He's attitudinally pro-gay. So it's not like he has a bias against people who identify as gay or lesbian. In fact, the study was very interesting. They had, uh, in in some of the diagrams, of course, this is 25,000 sets of twins, but when they just took a smaller look just to illustrate it, here's 250 pairs of twins. So you notice every pair of blocks is a set of identical twin brothers. The red blocks indicate that that brother has same-sex attraction. And you'll notice that in the top left corner, that red block, the corresponding white block is white and not red because his twin brother did not also have same-sex attraction. And if you'll notice, in most cases, the co-twin does not have same-sex attraction as well. Except for the bottom right-hand corner, both, both blocks have same-sex attraction because there were some cases in which both twins, yes, they did have same-sex attraction. But they were expecting this to be much higher than 11% if it was genetic. But because it wasn't that, they began to realize, oh man, it, if it was genetic, it'd be a much higher concordance rate. But how many have heard of Jason Collins? Raise your hand if you've heard of Jason Collins. Any NBA fans here? Not a few of you? Jason Collins became the first NBA player to come out and say, I'm gay while still playing in the NBA. Like he got a call from President Obama. He got put on the front page of Sports Illustrated. He was, you know, celebrated, you know, what a you know, hero and so on and so forth. So that's all great for Jason Collins. But what's interesting to know about Jason Collins' story is that Jason Collins, who does have same-sex attraction, has an identical twin brother named Jaron Collins. And guess what? His twin brother is not gay. In fact, he went to the Jimmy Kimmel TV show and Jimmy Kimmel gave him this, TV, uh, this T-shirt, you know? So that when he's out, you know, in downtown area and some guy starts to hit on him, he's like, hey, no, 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 I'm the straight one, you know? My brother's the gay guy. So no if it's genetic, they should both have same-sex attraction, but they don't because it's not genetic. Dr. Martin Dubman, who's the founder of the Center for Gay and Lesbian Studies, this guy has been chronicling the work of sexual orientation research for decades. He himself identifies as a gay man, and he says there is no good scientific work that proves or establishes that people are born gay or straight. Camille Paglia, who herself is a lesbian. She's a diehard advocate for LGBT rights. And in her book, Vamps and Tramps, she says, look, our sexual bodies were designed for reproduction. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality, she says, is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. And Lisa Diamond, who is a researcher for the American Psychological Association. She is a premier researcher for them. She's an editor for the American Psychological Association's handbook on psychology and sexuality. She herself is a lesbian and, of course, a champion for LGBT rights. And in her own research, which is called sexual fluidity, she argues that no one is born gay and changes in sexual attractions occur all the time. And in a recent presentation she gave at Cornell University, she said this, I feel as a community that the queers have to stop saying, please help us, 
We're born this way and we can't change as an argument for legal standing. I don't think we need that argument. And frankly, she says that argument is going to bite us in the, well, the you know what, can't say it in the church. Because we now know that there's enough data out there and the other side is aware of it as much as we are aware of it as well. Anyway, she's, she was just saying like, look, there's so much evidence out there that you're not born that way and that sexual attractions change. We got to stop saying the opposite. You get it? All the people who are in the know, all the researchers and the scientists who are the ones doing the actual research, who they, they themselves are gay and lesbian, are saying you're not born that way, and yet everyone in our culture thinks the opposite's true. I thought people cared about science. I thought people cared about the evidence. I thought science was king and God. But apparently not when it doesn't suit their own wishes. So, maybe people aren't born that way. Maybe they choose to have same-sex attraction. Now, I believe this is also a myth. A myth mostly believed by Christians. Now, listen very carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that people who identify as gay lesbian do not choose which behaviors to engage in. Of course, for the most part, virtually all behaviors are chosen. That's not my point. My question is, what is the reason why people experience same-sex attraction? Is it simply because they wake up one day and they say, hmm, I think I want to be attracted to the same sex, or I want to be attracted to the opposite sex? And I'm here to tell you that the answer is no, they don't do that for the most part, okay? Now, how do I know? Well, I have friends and family who I've asked who identify themselves as gay and lesbian. They say, I ask them, did you choose this? They say, no, absolutely not. Why would you think I chose? I, I did not choose this. Now you might say, but Alan, they're gay and lesbian people. Of course, why would they agree that they chose it? That, that wouldn't fit their narrative. Perhaps, I don't think they're lying. I've known these people for years, some of them decades, and they've shared a lot more vulnerable personal information about themselves to me than that. So I, I don't think they're lying about it, but I understand your skepticism. Let me offer to you another group of people that maybe we should listen to. And that is Christians who love Jesus Christ, who try to serve him every day of their lives, and who have same-sex attraction. Now, they don't think lustfully about those attractions, and they don't try to satisfy those same-sex desires through physical you know, actions like homosexual sex. So they, they try to flee from those desires. But when you ask them, did you choose to have these attractions? They all say, no. Why would I choose to have those attractions? Why would I choose to have attractions and desires that if I satisfied them, they'd be considered to be sin by God? I would love to get married one day, have children, have a family. You think I chose this? No, I didn't choose it. If I chose it, I would gladly unchoose it. I've tried to will away my attractions. I can't because it's not a matter of choice. So you might ask, well, okay, wait a minute. If you're not born that way and you don't choose these attractions, then what causes same-sex attraction? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is this. We've actually known what are some of the major pathways that lead to same-sex attraction. For over a hundred years, we've known them. Since before the time of Sigmund Freud, we've known what are some of the pathways that lead to it. It's actually been fairly uncontroversial up until 1973 when the American Psychiatric Association said homosexuality is not a mental disorder. Then it became pretty much politically incorrect to do any more research on that question. But we've known what caused it for years. 
Now, the bad news is I'm not going to tell you what those pathways are because unfortunately we don't have, we only have like 15 more minutes. So instead, I'll just do this and I, I hate to do this, but I wrote a short book called The Ambassador's Guide to Understanding Homosexuality. It's only 60 pages. You could knock this sucker out in like 30 minutes or an hour or two on a weekend, all right? But in it, I talk about the causes of male and female same-sex attraction, okay? And they, uh, it, I don't earn a penny, by the way, off the sale. It's not like I make any royalties. So I'm not doing it for that. I'm just simply saying, if you want more information about some of the causes, you can find them out in this, and it's being sold over there in the, on the red booth over there. But instead, oh, that's, that's a picture of the book if you couldn't see it. But instead, I want to uh, wrap up our time with a couple of principles that can help us to navigate our conversations with friends and family who identify themselves as gay or lesbian. Because as I said, once you learn the truth about what many of these people are experiencing and you develop a close relationship with them, you immediately begin to realize why they desperately need to have compassion. And so I want to offer you some principles. The first set of principles will really apply to any context, okay? So the first one is this. We need to, as Christians, avoid or kill the cliches that um, kill. All right, avoid the cliches that kill. Cliches that kill are simply cute, short, little pithy statements that we think are clever and helpful, but they just simply do more harm than good. Let me just give you a few examples of them. The first one's this. Homosexuality is a choice. Now, I know this might be hard for some of you to swallow, but remember, I think... I've tried to make it clear that I don't think homosexuals choose to be attracted to the same sex. Yes, of course, they choose which behaviors they engage in, but they don't choose to be attracted to the same sex. And so here's the problem. When you use this phrase or the word choice in any context pertaining to homosexuality, here's what they think. They think, oh, you think I chose this? You are completely out of touch with who I am. You have no sense for where I am. I, I didn't choose it. And so all this will simply do is just create walls between you and them and further alienate you in your relationship with them. So avoid this kind of language. I mean, most of them will never say, yeah, I chose it. And any, even the distinction between, well, there's a behavior that's chosen and the attractions are not chosen. I mean, just the chosen, the choice, all this language, it's not helpful. It just tells them that you are completely out of touch with who they are. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I, I don't know why we keep saying this, but believe it or not, I still hear it said. And I'm just telling you that my friends and family who hear this, they say, Alan, I don't know, why do Christians keep saying this? It's so offensive, all right? Look, if you want them to, if you want to communicate that God made them to function in a heterosexual way, then just go ahead and, and, and articulate that from the biblical view or maybe even using science. But don't resort to a corny cliche like this that just simply offends and alienates people uh, from you. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, I know this sounds biblically consistent and maybe even compassionate to you, but let me just tell you, for the people who hear this, they tell me, Alan, I cannot process this statement. It makes no sense. When I hear Christians telling me this, I cannot process it. Because to them, being gay is not just what they do, it's who they are. And so if God hates the sin but loves the sinner, do you know what's the only word they hear in that entire sentence? Yeah, hate. They hear, God hates me, and guess what? You hate them too. It actually has the opposite effect that you intend. So here's my suggestion. If you want them to believe that God loves them despite what they're doing, 
here's what you should do. Don't say something. Instead, do something. And that is, love them. You say God loves them? Well, then show it by how you treat them. Spend time with them. Go to the movies with them. Play tennis with them. You know, whatever you do with your other non-Christian friends, do it with them. And that'll communicate that you love them. And because you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ, and you might be the only Bible they ever read by virtue of your relationship with them, they'll come to realize, wow, you love me. And since you're a Christian, maybe God loves me too. That will communicate it far more effectively than just taking the shortcut and resorting to a corny cliche like this that just simply creates more harm than good. Don't make homosexuality out to be the worst sin. Again, I already mentioned that at the beginning. I don't think scripture teaches that. But sometimes our behavior communicates the same message, even though we might not say it's the worst sin. I was at a church one time and I found out that a girl in the youth group had invited her lesbian friend to the youth group. When the lesbian got to the youth group, the youth leadership asked the lesbian not to sit next to any other girl. Now, what do you think that communicated to her? Here she's probably thinking, wait a minute, everyone in this youth group is engaged in sin on a regular basis, right? Those two girls over there, they probably gossip. Maybe that boy and girl over there sitting together, they maybe are going too far in their relationship, sexually speaking. But they don't separate those two or those two, but they do separate me. Why? Because my sin's the worst. Again, no one said that, but that's what it communicated based on their behavior. And too often we do that inadvertently. We communicate that same message. You know, when we're talking with our Christian friends and all of a sudden one of our friends who's gay or lesbian comes into the conversation, all of a sudden our posture changes, the tone of our conversation changes, maybe the direction, oh, well, what do you think about this church event going on? And we act all stiff and awkward. They're not stupid. They pick up on this. And the reason that you do that is because you think that sin is different than other sins. Because notice, when any other friend comes into the conversation, you don't change your posture, you don't change your tone. And yet everyone who comes into that conversation has engaged in sin. (laughs) But we do change it when it's the gay or the lesbian person coming. Why? I don't know, but I'm telling you, this is what it communicates. Oh, we think that's the worst sin. Follow the principle of consistency. This is a principle as I'll just outline for you in just a moment, that will answer 99% of all of your questions that begin with, Alan, my brother says he's gay and he asked me so and so, something. What should I do? Okay? Those kinds of situations will be answered with this principle. Here's the principle. Treat a homosexual the same way you would treat a heterosexual in a morally comparable situation. So, for example, I I had um, some parents come up to me and say, Alan, um, our son says he's gay. He wants to come over for dinner tomorrow, and he wants to bring his boyfriend over. And we told him, son, I'm sorry, you can come, but you can't bring your boyfriend over. As I began talking to them, I discovered also that they had a daughter who was off to college who had a boyfriend, and she was having sex with her boyfriend. And I asked them, if your daughter was to come over for dinner, would you allow her to bring her boyfriend? They said, sure. I said, okay, this is the problem. You're not being consistent. Because both the son who is in a relationship with, a, with his boyfriend and the daughter who's in a relationship with her boyfriend and both involved in sexual sin are in a morally comparable situation. So if you're going to tell your son, no, you can't, you can't bring your boyfriend over, you better also tell your daughter the same thing. 
Now, I'm not saying you should let him bring his, his boyfriend over. I'm just simply saying whatever you do in one situation that's morally comparable, you should do it in the other situation. Just be consistent. That's the point. When you don't, when you're not consistent, you're creating special rules for just the sin of homosexuality. And then you go back to the previous problem, which is you're communicating that it's the worst sin. Even though you might not say that, you might even believe it, but that's how you're behaving. So again, just think of a morally comparable situation and that will answer typically what you should do in the, um, in the situation where you're dealing with a person who identifies himself as gay. What about some principles for the church? Well, the first thing is, I think we should welcome people who identify as gay or lesbian to church. When I say welcome, I do not mean we should let them in the door. What I mean is we should make them feel welcome. Like, come on in, show them the best seat in the house, introduce them to the pastor, invite them to the next, you know, 4th of July barbecue. When you have the next, you know, Christian band come and they're going to perform like a concert, invite them to that. Don't we want these people to come and hear the message being preached from the pulpit? Don't we want them to experience genuine Christian fellowship and love? How will they ever experience that and know the word of God and know the message of the gospel unless they're, fake, they're made to feel welcome when they come to church? It just seems like that's obvious advice. Now, having said that, church leadership is off limits to practicing homosexuals. But notice, this is not a special rule we create just for homosexuals. This applies to anyone engaged in ongoing unrepentant sin. If your pastor, your elder, some worship leader is involved in ongoing sin and is unrepentant about it, they too should be removed from leadership. So this is not some special rule just for the topic of homosexuality. It applies church-wide. Now, if, there are, if we have Christians in the church who love Jesus Christ and who uh, experience same-sex attraction, but they do not try to satisfy those same-sex desires by thinking lustfully about them or by engaging in homosexual sex, then those Christians should be treated just like any other Christian. Why? Because they are just like any other Christian. All of us are actually born with natural inclinations towards behaviors that God says, if you satisfy those inclinations, it is sin. But the Christian is the, 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 Christian is the person who says, man, I, I have these desires, but I'm going to deny them. Why? Because I want to live according to the will of the Father, not according to my own will, which is exactly what Jesus did, by the way. So for the Christian who experiences same-sex attraction but denies those desires and does not try to satisfy them, they can participate in any manner of church leadership. They can be senior pastor, elder, whatever. I know senior pastors with same-sex attraction. Again, they're not trying to satisfy those desires. They're trying to, to deny them, just like we try to deny our own desires as well when they are out of touch with God's will. And then don't joke about homosexuality. I, I, I can't understand why, as a church, sometimes when we're around just like a bunch of believers, we think it's okay to make fun of homosexuality or homosexuals in, in general. It's like, what are we thinking? The problem is this. We don't realize that many times we might be in a conversation with someone who actually struggles with same-sex attraction. You know, I live in San Diego. I've been hosting a small group at my home for 17 years. And over those years, I've had several people, both males and females, tell me, Alan, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, they privately told me that because they, they wanted to have some freedom to tell someone to, to help pray for them and so on and so forth. 
but they didn't share it with the rest of the group. You know why? Because I often had times when some of the men and women would make jokes about homosexuals. They'd talk with a lisp, they'd flip their wrist around, like, you know, they got limp wrists and ridiculous things. And so these Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction are thinking, you know what? I will never share my struggle with these people because they're, they're, they're making fun of this. Look, brothers and sisters, we don't have to give these people any more reason to continue to hide the fact that they are struggling with same-sex attraction. They need to be able to feel the freedom to come out and tell us, man, I need your prayer. I need your support. I need your accountability. I need your love. But when we mock their sin, we tell them, shut up. I don't want to hear about it because what you're experiencing makes me feel uncomfortable. Man, that is not an option for us. That is not the way we're supposed to be behaving. But we do that when we make fun of them. And then for your friends and family, try to make keeping a relationship with them a high priority. Look, I'm not saying it has to be the highest priority. Your relationship with God should be the highest in your family and all that stuff. But make it a high priority. Love them. Pursue them. Spend time with them. Whatever you do with your other friends, do it with them. They'll help them to see, man, yeah, you know, I, I, I do feel welcome to the church. Don't confuse love with accepting behavior. A lot of times Christians believe that the only way we can love our friends and family who identify as gay lesbian is if we accept what they're doing. Look, if you're a parent here, you know that's not the case, right? Chances are you had two, some kids perhaps, and little Johnny would beat up on little Sarah. You'd be like, Johnny, cut it out. What you're doing is wrong. You think his behavior is wrong, but do you still love, love little Johnny? Absolutely. Because there's nothing odd about loving someone but disagreeing with what they do. Um, treat homosexuals as you would anyone else. This goes back to the principle of consistency. You know, I, I remember I had a friend, she, um, she's a flight attendant. And uh, she says, a lot, of gay, a lot of men who are flight attendants with me, coworkers, are gay men. And she said, one day, a gay man who's a flight attendant showed me a picture of himself and his boyfriend. And she said, I didn't know what to do. I freaked out. I said, let me ask you a question. If a female flight attendant showed you a picture of herself with her boyfriend and you knew they were sleeping together, what would you have said then? She's like, oh, that's easy. I would just ask Bill, what's his name? Where did you meet? How long have you been together? I said, we'll do that with the gay guy. What's the difference? Both the female flight attendant who's engaged in sexual sin and the male flight attendant who's engaged in sexual sin are in a morally comparable situation. If you ask a girl, what is your boyfriend's name and they're sleeping together, are you, are you condoning fornication? No. If you ask her, well, how long have you been together? Are you condoning uh, fornication? No. So if you ask a gay guy, oh, what, what's his name? Are you condoning homosexuality? No. You're just being a human being, all right? You can have relationships and talk to people about their relationships. It's okay. You're not condoning homosexuality by just simply asking them basic questions about their life. Don't make homosexuality the issue. A lot of Christians are like always trying to figure out how can they bring up homosexuality in their conversation with their gay friends and family? It's like, why do you make that the only issue? Talk about other things. I have a friend, he works at Starbucks, he goes, Alan, my coworker at Starbucks, he's gay. How do I tell them that being gay is a sin? I'm like, really? Is, is that all you do at work? Like you try to figure out what your coworkers are sinning and try to tell them? It's like, okay, uh, yes, sir, uh, you like a caramel, uh, caramel macchiato? Hey, Frank, a uh, customer here wants a caramel macchiato. And stop looking at porn. It's like, <laughs> we don't do that. You just 
have him make the thing and hang out with them and just be a normal person. If the subject comes up, by all means, talk about it, but don't make it the issue as if there's nothing else to talk about. Instead, try to think long-term. Don't resort to short-term cliches. Try to think long-term. How can I have a lasting influence in their life? How to have a long-term relationship so you can have a lasting impact over multiple years? Why? Because the ultimate thing is, if you want to share anything about your convictions, if you're so just like, man, I just got to tell them about something, here's my suggestion. Tell them about Jesus. Make Jesus the issue. Right? I mean, after all, isn't that what we ultimately want? Don't we want them to to accept Jesus Christ? Look, even if they were to abandon homosexuality but not accept Jesus, their eternal destiny would still be in jeopardy. So clearly homosexuality isn't the only issue. Yeah, it's an important issue, but our hope for homosexuals is not heterosexuality, it's holiness. We're not trying to make them straight. We're trying to lead them straight to Jesus Christ. In fact, every time I've seen a man or a woman give up satisfying same-sex desires, it was because they first accepted Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit came into their lives and transformed them from the inside out. So look, if you want to make anything the issue, make Jesus the issue. That will be ultimately what has the greatest impact in their life. Before I close, let me just make a mention here. I gave you some propaganda, I mean some uh, uh, important flyer. Uh, If you pull it apart, you'll notice that there's a blue card. The blue card is for me. This is just a quick handy tactic about, it's called the Columbo tactic from the TV show Columbo, where it's just a handy way of just knowing some questions that you can ask in conversations to help you productively advance any sort of discussion you're having. That's for you to keep in your purse, your wallet, your man bag, whatever guys keep these days. The blue, uh, I'm sorry, the white card's for me. If you like kind of what we're talking about here today and you want this kind of material on other topics like stem cell research, cloning, Islam, or whatever, then I encourage you to fill this out and give this card to me or just put it on the, on the table there with the um, red um, tablecloth and we'll get you signed up for free training that we send out every two months, okay? And it's on some timely topic like that. It's awesome stuff. I encourage you to check it out. And again, thank you for your time today. And I'll be uh, in the back if you have any questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.